me see. of all my faults and my failures when I consider all the times I've let God down I am humbled by the grace he has extended I'm at the mercy I have found I could never earn his love on my own Yet every time I come before his throne I stand redeemed by the blood of the Lamb I stand redeemed before the great I am When he looks at me the nail-scarred hands that bought my liberty, I stand redeemed. Even at my best I am unworthy, I have nothing precious I can give. A broken life is all I have to offer, and yet it's a priceless gift to Him. The bitter mark of sin could never fade away, but I can come before Him unashamed. I stand redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I stand redeemed before the great I am. When he looks at me, he sees the nail-scarred hands that bought my liberty. I stand redeemed. I stand Thank you, Tracy. That was beautiful. I stand redeemed. Aren't you glad you're redeemed? Amen. Amen. Thank you to 
to uh, Lauren for leading the singing this morning and for uh, uh, Denise on the piano and all of our musicians did a wonderful job, just beautiful. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I'll say to you, Happy New Year. And hope you have a great year. We're starting on a new journey today, aren't we? A journey of this new year, 2022. Who would have thought it a few years ago would be in 2022? Uh, time goes fast. And in Philippians chapter 3, we have a passage where, where Paul is encouraging the Philippian believers to continue on their journey and giving them some truths that will prepare them for their journey. You and I are starting a new journey today. Now, we've been on a journey, but, you know, this is a milestone, a new year. Uh, Paul's not talking about a new year, but Paul's talking about the journey of life, the Christian journey. And so it uh, certainly applies to us on this journey of a new year. Well, with that said, look over in chapter 3, and you see the title there, What Lies Ahead. We'll see that in our passage, and then preparing for the journey. Look at uh, chapter 3, and move over to verse... 13. Paul writes, Brethren, I count it not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Before can be translated ahead. That's where I got the title there. And uh, the New King James translates that ahead and most of the new ones. The things which are ahead or lie ahead. And then 14, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for a new year ahead of us. May it be a good year. There may be some difficulties. But we pray that we will be what you would have us to be in this year. Speak to us now and encourage our hearts. Prepare us for the journey, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is a hiking trail called the Pacific Crest Trail, and it's 2,650 miles long. It runs from Mexico and runs through California, Oregon, and Washington, and all the way into Canada. And uh, as one writer puts it, it's uh, winding through desert wasteland, along breathtaking ridges, and beside glacier expansions. When I say Karen and I like to hike, I'm talking about walking in the woods for 30 minutes. That's our kind of hiking. We may stretch it to an hour every now and then, but uh, not this kind of hiking. 2,650 miles. In 2018, a lady by the name of Katharina Groen traveled from Germany for the purpose of hiking this trail. She started in the south in Mexico and uh, continued on her journey. It took her five months to get the first 2,000 miles. Can you imagine walking 2,000 miles? 
five months. And then she, she ran into a lady named Nancy Abel, who was from Seattle. The next part of her journey now was going to go through the glaciers, and even Glacier Peak. She met this lady, and they struck up a friendship, and when they were parting, the, uh, the local lady, Nancy, tried to persuade uh, Katharina from, continu <clears throat> from continuing on. <clears throat> because the next leg of this journey was so difficult. And she didn't, in Nancy's opinion, she didn't have the proper equipment. She didn't have snowshoes, and the snow could be very deep and so forth. She tried to talk her out of it, but Katharina could not be talked out of it. I mean, she had already spent five months of her life on this project. She wasn't about to quit. So she continued on the journey, the last 600-plus miles. And now I'm reading the story to you. Katharina soon regretted her decision. When conditions turned deadly, she realized she didn't have everything she needed for the elements. She was not prepared for her journey. Her clothes were soaked and her shoes were no match for the snow and ice. She became dehydrated and hungry and eventually she only had one Pop-Tart left in her backpack and she was in the middle of nowhere, stranded in a snowstorm blizzard. One of her tarps blew away she lost two pairs of her gloves, and then frostbite set in. She had no phone service. Soon, Katharina came to believe that she would perish in the wilds of the North Cascades. She even started composing goodbye messages to her loved ones. And then she heard the sound of something beating the wind, blades chopping the air, a rescue helicopter was flying below the heavy clouds. The pilots, as the story goes, had their heads hanging out the window watching uh, her footprint she had made, her trail she had made in the snow. And then they found her with a bright red jacket next to some old timbers. How did the rescue team know she was out there? Well, the friend she made, Nancy kept thinking about that new friend and then she knew this big storm had come in and she just felt sure she would be in peril and she was so she called the authorities and they rescued her she was saved like a hiker in the wild sometimes we find ourselves stranded isolated in our journey Sometimes we're called unexpected by the storms of life. Sometimes we are endangered by the circumstances we find ourselves in. It's dangerous not to be fully equipped for the journey. Paul's going to talk about being fully equipped in this passage. It's never God's plan for us not to be equipped. He's the divine outfitter and he wants to outfit us with what we need for the journey that lies ahead this year and of course 
in the years to come in our continuing journey. Now, Paul speaks about that here in this passage. If you look at your screen, I'll give you the outline as I see it of this chapter. Uh, the first... The first part of it is remembering and celebrating your salvation. This will help us prepare. Remember and celebrate your salvation. This is going to be a three-part series. That's what I'm speaking on today. Next week, we'll look at the second section in this chapter. Desire and participate in your sanctification. And then the third week, we'll look at this. Know and anticipate your glorification. You see the ch verses there, and this is, uh, this makes up our uh, study. So with that said, now come back to our verse 1 now. We read kind of in the middle of that chapter, and we'll look at those verses in more detail next week, but come back to verse 1. Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Finally doesn't mean that he's going to close. I remember a story of Two people sitting in church. One of them had never been to church much, and he kept saying, what does that mean? And the person next to him would say, well, it means this, it means that. When the preacher was preaching, he said, he said, finally, and the, the, the new guy said to the other guy, said, what does that mean? He said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so Paul uses it here in the middle of his epistle. Finally. The idea is moving to another section. Moving to another truth, another thought. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I'm going to come back to that phrase, rejoice in the Lord, as we close. He says, to write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. He said, I'm going to write to you some things you already know, some things I've already said, but I'm going to remind you of them. You know, you don't come to church to hear something new necessarily. You may occasionally. If you've been saved a long time, you won't hear too much new. But uh, we're reminded of the things we know, the, the truths of God's Word that encourage us. He said, for you it's safe. Now, one thing he's going to do, he's going to warn them against false teachers. Look at verse 2. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. He uses three phrases to describe these false teachers. Now, the false teachers he's talking about is not just somebody that's a little confused on doctrine or somebody who in, in some way uh, uh, has trouble distinguishing law and grace. But this is a group of people who, who mutilated the gospel. That's what concision means there. They mutilated the gospel because they said, believe on Christ, but you also have to be circumcised. Uh, they're called by scholars Judaizers. They came out of the Jewish religion. They somewhat embraced Christianity, but not fully. And so they brought with them the law of Moses and the teaching of the Old Testament about circumcision. And so... They taught that in order to be saved, you have to first convert to, to Judaism and be circumcised. And then from there, you could follow on and become a Christian. These were not just confused people. These were false teachers. These were people who were teaching 
a way of salvation that was incorrect, that was against the word of God. So Paul calls them dogs. Now that's not a racial slur because these were Jewish people, some of them, and Paul himself was a Jew. But the idea of dogs in, in New Testament times, there were wild dogs. This is the word for wild dog. There's another word for a tame dog in the Greek. But uh, this were wild dogs. So he says they're dangerous. If you were on a journey and uh, a pack of wild dogs come up, you need to be prepared somehow to, uh, to protect yourself from them. And so he calls them dogs. They're dangerous. False teachers are dangerous. And along the journey, you and I are going to run into some false teachers. Be careful. Be prepared. They're dangerous. And then he calls them evil workers. They're, they're sinful. What they're teaching is evil in that it, it hinders people from entering into the kingdom through the gospel of grace. And then they're mutilators. Uh, concision there, the New King James and others translated mutilators. That is, they have mutilated the gospel. You can't, just, you can't just take part of it and throw stuff in with it. That mutilates the very message. Then in verse 3, he describes those who are, are of the circumcision of the heart, true believers. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. He would later say in his other epistles, he would talk about being the true circumcision. The circumcision of the heart, that which takes place when someone comes to Christ. Now today, as far as physical circumcision is concerned, it's, it's a medical decision. It's a preference. But even, even today, among the, the uh, Orthodox Jewish people, circumcision plays a part in their religious life. So he says, we're the, we're the true circumcision, and he names three things. If you look up at your screen, kindly divided those three things for you. We are the circumcision who worships, worships God in the Spirit. Now, the English word for worship means, if you go back to its root, it means worth, something worth. If, if, you, if you put supreme worth on your bank account, it could be said you're worshiping money because that's where you put your worth or anything else for that matter, a hobby or, a, or even family. And uh, so it comes from this idea of worth. And then the expression, let's say you're singing a song and you lift your hands or you're singing to the Lord and that kind of thing, that's an, ex that's an expression of that worth. When we sing, we're saying to the Lord, Lord, you're worthy of our praise. You've done this and you've done that and you are this and you are that and because of it, you're worthy of our uh, worshiping you. So it's expressing that worth. So he says, true believers worship in the Spirit. Now, you remember that the, uh, there's no capitals in, in, in small small caps, large caps in the Greek, and so that's added by the translators. The, the uh, King James, the old King James uh, has a little s, the new King James has a 
capital S, referring to the Spirit. And some scholars think this could be the Spirit, the inner part of man. Most scholars feel like it is a reference to the Holy Spirit because he leads us in worship and guides us in worship. He's the one who's come to glorify the Lord Jesus. He's the one who's come to cry, Abba, Father, in our hearts. So the Holy Spirit moves, and, and if we let him, he'll help us in our worship. And then the third thing is, uh, or the second thing is, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, that, this word rejoice and the word in verse 1 rejoice are two different words in the Greek. This one means to brag or to boast. You're going to see this, is, this thought is run through the entire text. Uh, Paul says, we boast in the Lord Jesus. We don't get together and boast about what good works we've done and how much we've accomplished and all that kind of thing. We get together and brag on Jesus. Our songs brag on Jesus. Our preaching brags on Jesus. Uh, we rejoice in the Lord Jesus. We boast in Christ. And then... The third thing says we have no confidence in the flesh. That is, we have no confidence in our humanity, our own goodness, our own abilities to get us to heaven. Now, this is, all of this is in reference to salvation. So you, you don't want, uh, for instance, a brain surgeon. If you're going to have brain surgery, you want somebody who's got confidence in what they can do. You don't want a brain surgeon to come in the few minutes before the surgery and say, well, I don't know about this. I'm not really good at this particular surgery, but I'm going to do my best. Good luck to you. Now, you want somebody that says, I've done this before. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. It's going to work, and uh, just put yourself in my hands. That's okay. That's good, because he's not trusting his surgery to get him to heaven. This context is talking about salvation. Paul says true believers, somebody may be a, a brain surgeon and be a true believer, but they don't have any confidence in the flesh when it comes to getting to heaven, when it comes to salvation. And then Paul moves <clears throat> to a very personal testimony of, him, of himself. Look down at verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. He says, now if you're going to talk about confidence in the flesh to get you to heaven, I, I, could, I couldn't talk about that. I know about that. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath thereof, that he might trust in the flesh, I more. Now, the Judaizers were mixing works and, and, uh, and grace, the law and the gospel. They were mixing that. And uh, they thought their good works would get them to heaven. There are people today who think the same thing. And uh, Paul is going to say to us, if anybody thinks they could get to heaven because of good works, I'd be the candidate for that. But he's going to tell us in a moment, of course, that that's not the reality. 
So he says he begins to give this testimony. By the way, Paul gave his testimony a lot. You know, his historical conversion takes place in Acts chapter 9, but then he tells that story in great detail in Acts 22 and again in Acts 26. And then in the epistles, he tells us, gives us insight into his conversion. And this is one of those places in the epistles where he shares his story. He's going he's gonna to remember and celebrate his salvation right in front of us. And so uh, he begins by saying, the, telling us the attitude he had prior to his conversion to Christ. So here's the things he could trust in if he were going to boast in the flesh or trust in the flesh. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. Now the, he's going to give us seven things where he could trust in the flesh. The first four had to do with... Uh, his, his birth, he was born into it. The next three have to do with his, his diligence, his hard work, and his uh, attitude, his life. So he first says, circumcise the eighth day. What does that mean? Eighth day. Why is that significant? That means he was a descendant of Israel and not Ishmael. The Ishmaelites are, were circumcised at the age of 13. And it also means he was not a proselyte. That means he had not come to Judaism later in life. Those people would be circumcised at whatever age they were. But he says, I got circumcised on the exact eighth day, just like the law says. So if you're going to boast in something... I could boast in this. And then he says, of the stock of Israel, or that is, he came out of Israel. Uh, and then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the tribe who stayed faithful to David. And uh, it was an exalted, uh, the tribe of Israel. And then, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means he was, his not only was he a Hebrew, his parents were Hebrew. And, uh, and they were faithful Jewish people. They were Hebrews. But this phrase also became popular uh, during Bible days to describe someone who grew up speaking the Hebrew language. Now, there were many, many Jews, of course, in, in the Middle East. They were dispersed, and some were uh, in different places, but some were centered in Judah and, and, um, and uh, Galilee. But most of them grew up speaking Greek. And they, may, they knew a little Hebrew here and there, but they grew up speaking Greek, and they grew up used to the Greek culture. This term, Hebrew of Hebrews, come to mean someone who grew up speaking uh, Hebrew as their primary language and in the Hebrew customs of the day. So he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And then as touching the law, he was a Pharisee. Now to you and I, the word Pharisee means uh, hypocrite. But that's because Jesus exposed the Pharisees as hypocrites. So we identify that, those two words together. But not in this day. 
The Jewish people viewed the Pharisees as the strictest religious people of their day. They were the pinnacle of religion. Uh, the word itself means to separate. They were separated from everybody else and put on a pedestal. There was only, according to Josephus, the great historian, there was only 6,000 Pharisees in New Testament times. And uh, so it was an elite group. Paul was one of that elite group in the Jewish religion. And then he says, uh, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Zeal, that fire in your heart that makes you do what you think is right. That zeal for his, for his Jewish religion made him persecute the church. You remember he was standing there when the first martyr was martyred. And then the book of Acts tells us he was angry and breathing out threats. And he went to Damascus to arrest people who believed on Christ. So, and then he says, touching righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Now, he didn't say sinless, but blameless. There is a difference. He was righteous in the eyes of the law because when he did sin, he made the proper sacrifices for it and so on and so forth under the system of Judaism. So he was blameless. Paul would write in another place, there is none righteous. He was not calling himself righteous in that sense. There is none righteous, there is none good, no, not one. Romans 3. And uh, so he reveals these things about himself. Now he begins to swing to the other side of things. Look at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Now, this word gain and this word loss are accounting terms, bookkeeping terms. You might put profit, gain, at the top of the page, and you might put under that profit all the profits that you have, all the gains that you have concerning your money. And Paul's telling here, it's not money, it's salvation. And then you'd have to put your losses all over here. So in a sense then we visualize that Paul is saying all of my profits, all the good stuff that'll get me to heaven, I listed over here and it is you know circumcised on the eighth day and so on and so so on and so forth. But when I met Christ, I moved all of that big old long list of good things, I moved them over into the loss section. They did not get me one inch closer to heaven, not one second closer to heaven. They're all in the loss column. Look as he continues on. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of, knowing, of knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, he explains salvation here, gives us some insight into salvation, that it is knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. If you remember Jesus in the high priestly prayer, he said in uh, John 17, 3, this is eternal life that you might know the only true and living God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Salvation is coming to know Jesus. 
Now, he used a very specific Greek word here that means to be acquainted with someone, to come into a relationship with someone. You and I know a little bit about, you know, famous people in history, some of the presidents maybe, and things like that, but we didn't know them personally, we just knew about them. This is a word that means you know them personally. So salvation and eternal life comes when we come to know Christ personally. That's the reason the term receive Christ as your own personal Savior and things, terms like that are used. And then he says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, that is everything good, those things, he's not just talking about sin, he's talking about all those good things he did. Those things are lost when it comes to salvation. He put them over in the loss column. And do count them but dung. Dung, of course, is waste. He counts them no better than dung that I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith. He said I tried and tried for all those years to earn righteousness. Then I came to the place where I realized it didn't get me any closer to heaven and I and I come to know Christ personally. And then I knew heaven was my home. I had a righteousness that was imputed to me. When righteousness is imputed, that's a, that's a uh, accounting word as well. So when we get saved, when we're willing to move all of those things we were trusting to get us to heaven out of the, out of the gain column then we are imputed with righteousness. Romans 4 uses that word many times. That is an accounting word. Christ's righteousness then is placed in the gain column. So we, we move all that out, the gain column is, is empty, and we write in there, Christ alone. That's all we need. And he brings his righteousness, and it is imputed un. To us. Now, think about this in the way of, a, of somebody today. Maybe they wouldn't say, unless they were a Jewish person, but they wouldn't say, I was circumcised on the eighth day and the things that, that Paul said. But we might say some other things. We might say some things like, well, my parents were Christians. Or maybe my mama was, my mama was a really good Christian. I hear people say, my grandmother was a really good Christian. And uh, I started going to church when I was just a baby. I've believed in God all of my life. I was, I've been baptized. I'm a church member. But if you're talking about salvation, none of those things get you one inch closer. You've got to come to the place where you mark all of those things when it, in regard to making it to heaven, in regard to salvation. You've got to count all of those things as nothing, as loss. So that you trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation and for righteousness. This is a beautiful passage. Paul is doing what? He is remembering and celebrating his salvation so that you and I can learn from what he is doing. Now, let's think about some of the... Uh, some thoughts and applications for this passage. Look back at your screen. 
Preparing for the journey, we have first you remember and celebrate your salvation. Paul's doing that. He did it in Acts 22. He did it in Acts 26. He did it in Galatians. He does it here and in other places. And uh, celebrating your salvation. Now this is important for our journey. Because if you're not careful, you forget. Now you don't forget it happened. You just forget to think about it. You forget to praise Him. You forget to glory in it. You forget to rejoice in Christ Jesus. And here's some ways in which, some practical ways in which we can remember and celebrate our salvation. We attend church. You know, when we come together and sing, most of the time, I'd say 90% of the time, we're singing songs about our salvation. We're going to sing about the blood. We're going to sing about the cross. We're going to sing about the resurrection. We're going to sing about forgiveness of sin. We're going to sing about God's love and God's goodness and all of those things remind us. So don't come into a service and say, oh, they're singing. I've heard that song many times and so forth. Sing and be reminded and remember that he redeemed you by his blood. That beautiful song that Tracy sang a few moments ago, redeemed. Wow, what a word. We're redeemed, aren't we, by the blood. Come to church and hear the beautiful song. That song, My Chains Are Gone. What a blessing. Last week, I was sitting right down here on the front pew when uh, Mary Alice sang the song she sang, which was talking about what did I do to deserve such love? And of course, the answer in the song was nothing. We couldn't do anything. We couldn't earn anything. It was freely given. I sat there and celebrated my salvation. <laughs> and so, attend church. Be a part of a local assembly. It's important. And then listen to Christian music for the same reason that you would come to church that I just mentioned and those songs remind us of our salvation. Christian music does the same. So whatever your genre you prefer, uh, you know, uh, southern gospel or, or contemporary or whatever you prefer. Find a station or find some CDs or, and, or, or put them on your phone and listen to Christian music that reminds you of your salvation. So you can celebrate. <coughs> and then tell your story. Tell your story. You see, Paul is telling his story here. He told his story in those other places I mentioned a few moments ago. He's telling his story right here about how he counted it all but lost that he might gain Christ. Tell your story. Tell it to yourself. Think about what you would say to someone and how you can share your testimony. You know, one of the best ways to witness is just tell what Jesus has done for you. That he forgave you, that he changed you. That you have joy and so forth. Tell, tell what Jesus has done for you. Tell the story. I remember Dr. Lee Robertson, who was the pastor of Highland Park Baptist Church and the founder of, of uh, Tennessee Temple University, where I went to Bible college. I remember hearing him tell a story once about a pastor that he would go preach at his church every year and uh, when he would pick him up at the airport, whoever was driving, he'd always have a different driver. And uh, this pastor would say to the driver, 
you know, whatever his name, Bill, uh, Tom, tell Dr. Robertson how you got saved. And the driver would tell, you know, about how he came to Christ. And the pastor would always say, if you don't tell it, you forget it. Let's tell it. Find somebody to tell this year. Tell it to, in your own heart and mind how you would tell it to someone. Then when the chance comes, tell it to someone. Tell your story. And then the last practical thought on this is thank the Lord every day. When you get up in the morning, thank the Lord for your salvation. Before my feet hit the ground, I've already started a process of thanking the Lord for the blood, for the cross, for forgiveness of sin, for salvation, and for him being my savior and best friend. You don't have to do it in the morning. You can do it in the evening. Or you can do it in the middle, middle of the day. But sometime during the day, be sure you thank the Lord for your salvation. Celebrate it a little bit. You know, however you celebrate, you might raise your hand and say, Woo! You know? Maybe you cry a little bit. Or maybe you sing words to Jesus. Thank him. Be sure you thank him every day. So, remember your salvation and celebrate your salvation. And then the second thing, and we close with this, learn to find your joy in the Lord. Learn to find your joy in the Lord. You remember that word joy right there at the beginning? Look back at verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. You know, the word joy or rejoice is in the Bible 434 times, 37 times in the New Testament, 14 times in this epistle right here. This is an epistle about joy and rejoicing in how you and I can have that joy. Two times in this chapter, the word rejoice is used. One time, you remember in verse 3, it meant to boast in the Lord. But the word in verse 1 is a totally different word. It means to rejoice in the sense of having joy. There are actually five root words in the Greek for joy and rejoice. And then there's many variations of those words. But this is the one that means joy in the sense of what you and I think. And also... This is the first time the phrase rejoice or have joy in the Lord. So we are to find our joy in the Lord. So maybe in this journey this year, one of the things you need is to find the joy of Jesus, to learn to rejoice in the Lord. Let's, let's look at the definition of that word rejoice in verse 1. It's uh, uh, Cairo is the Greek word. It's translated in the King James 42 times as rejoice, 14 times as be glad. Be glad in the Lord. And then joy five times. Have joy. Let your joy be in the Lord. Strong's defines it like this. To be cheerful, to be calmly happy. You don't have to be jumping up and down. Just calmly happy. A cheerful person. Some of you are thinking, I really hope my wife learns to have joy so she can be cheerful and calmly happy. Some of you wives are thinking the same thing about your husband. To be cheerful and happy 
and to be glad, to be well, to be joyful, to rejoice. And then Vine's Dictionary defines it like this, to be to or to have, to be glad or to have joy, joyfulness, joyous, and so forth. Also in this passage, the verb is in the tense, the present tense, which indicates continual action. So that Dr. Weiss translates this, verse 1, the first part, be continually rejoicing in the Lord. Be continually finding your joy in the Lord. Think about that. That's what God calls us. You need some preparation for whatever's coming this year. Could be some heartaches, could be some disappointments. But if your joy is in Jesus, then you can continue to have joy. You know, later in chapter 4, Paul would, would write that famous verse, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's the same word as in verse 1 we're looking at right there. It means to be happy, to be calmly happy, to be glad, to be cheerful all the time in all circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then the psalmist David gives us some insight into where this joy is found. He says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. You can't separate the presence of God in joy. You can't have really the, the Lord's joy in any other way than to have his fellowship, his communion. That's where joy comes from. And then Jesus himself says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. It's something encouraging to me to know that God wants us to have joy. Doesn't that encourage you a little bit? God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be cheerful. That's encouraging. Jesus, when he said these things were written unto you, he had just talked about the vine and the branches, the relationship of fellowship and communion between the believer and Christ himself. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Then he says, you can find my joy, you can receive my joy, so that your joy can be full. Maybe today you would start your journey by asking the Lord to teach you how to have joy in him, how to find your joy in him. Ask him to teach you that. If you learn that this year, it'll be a great year. Maybe you've had joy before, but as all of us know, circumstances come along and problems and heartaches and, and disappointments, and it, if we allow it, it'll steal away our joy. So maybe for many of you, you'd say, Lord, restore your joy to my heart. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, the most important thing you'll ever do is receive him as your savior come to know him and know that heaven is your home because of Christ and Christ alone bow with me please father lord jesus thank you for the promise of joy teach us right now some of your people right here are saying teach me to have your joy others are saying lord restore your joy to my heart hear their cries may this be a year that though it may be filled with difficulty 
we learn, or maybe we learn again, to find our joy in you and to rejoice and celebrate our salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, please. The words are on the screen. We're going to sing together. And as we do, if you'd like to come for prayer, we invite you to come. Let's sing.